0: Chapter Two of Lion Ben of Elm Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Lion Ben of Elm Island by Elijah Kellogg. Chapter Two. The Rhines Family. "'In order that you may know all about them, we will resume the thread of our story and trace the history of Captain Rhines and his family. "'The captain was a strong-built, finely proportioned, harder-weather sailor, not a great deal the worse for wear, and seasoned by the suns and frosts of many climates. "'In early life he had experienced the bitter struggle with poverty.' His father came into the country when it was a wilderness with nothing but a narrow axe and strength to use it. His first crops being cut off by the frosts, they were compelled to live for months upon clams and the leaves of beech trees boiled. There were no schools and the parents, engaged in a desperate struggle for existence with famine and the Indians, were unable to instruct their children. Fishing vessels from Marblehead, often anchored in the cove near the log camp, and little Ben, anxious to earn somewhat to aid his parents in their poverty, went as cook in one of these vessels when so small that someone had to hang on the pot for him. He was thus engaged for several summers, till big enough to go as boy in a coaster. During the winters, arrayed in buckskin breeches, Indian moccasins and coonskin cap, He helped his father make staves, and hauled them to the landing on a hand sled. At nineteen years of age he went to Salem, and shipped in a brig bound to Havana, to load with sugar for Europe. He was then a tall, handsome, resolute boy, as ever the sun shone upon, without a single vicious habit, for his parents, though poor, were religious, and had brought him up to hard work and the fear of God. He was passionately fond of a gun and dogs, and what little leisure he ever had was spent in hunting and fowling. As respected his fitness for his position, he could steer a good trick, had learned what little seamanship was to be obtained on board a fisherman and coaster, but he could not read or even write his name. The mate of the vessel conceived a liking for him the moment he came over the ship's side, and his good opinion increased upon acquaintance. They had been but a fortnight at sea, when he said to the captain, "'That long-legged boy, who shipped for a green hand, "'will be as good a man as we have on board before we get to the English Channel. "'He will reeve studding-sail gear already quicker than any ordinary seaman. "'I liked the cut of his jib the moment I clapped eyes on him. "'If that boy lives, he'll be master of a ship before many years.' "'I hardly see how that can be,' replied the captain, "'for he can't write his own name.' "'Can't write his own name. Why, that's impossible. "'At any rate, he made his mark on the ship's articles, "'and he is the only one of the crew who did.' "'Well,' replied the mate, "'I can't see through it, but he's in my watch "'and I'll know more about it before twenty-four hours.' "'That night the mate went forward "'where Ben was keeping the lookout. "'Ben?' ay aye, sir. Where do you hail from?' "'Way down in the woods in Maine, Mr. Brown.' "'What was you about there?' "'fishing and coasting summers and working in the woods in the winter. "'Why didn't you ship, then, for an ordinary seaman and get more wages? "'Because, sir, I was never in a square-rigged vessel before, "'and I didn't want to ship to do what I might not be able to perform. "'I see you made your mark on the brig's articles. "'Were you never at school? No, sir.' "'Why not? There's no such thing where I came from.' "'Couldn't your parents read and write?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then why didn't they learn you themselves? "'There were a good many of us, sir, "'and they were so put to it to raise enough to live on "'and fight the Indians they had no time for it.' "'The mate was a noble-hearted man. "'All his sympathies were touched at seeing so fine a young man "'prevented from rising by an ignorance that was no fault of his own. "'He took two or three turns across the deck "'and at length said, "'I'll tell you what it is, youngster.' I'll say this much before your face or behind your back. You're just the best behaved boy, the quickest to learn your duty and the most willing to do it, that I ever saw. And I've been following the sea for nearly thirty years. And before I'll see an American boy like you, kept down by ignorance, I'll do as I'd be done by, turn schoolmaster and teach you myself. Mr. Brown was as good as his word, while the rest of the crew, in their forenoon watch below, were mending their clothes, telling long yarns or playing cards, and when in port drinking and frolicking, Ben was learning to read and write, and putting his whole soul into it. He stuck to the vessel, and Mr. Brown stuck to him. When he shipped the next voyage as able seaman, he wrote his name in good fair hand. They went to Charleston, South Carolina, to load with pitch, rice and deerskin, for Liverpool. The vessel was a long time completing her cargo, as it had to be picked up from the plantations. Ben improved the time to learn navigation. From Liverpool they went to Barbados. While lying there, the captain of the ship, James Welsh of Boston, named after the principal owner, died. The mate taking charge of the ship, Ben, by Mr Brown's recommendation, obtained the first mate's berth. He was now no longer Ben, but Mr. Rhines, and finally becoming master of the ship, continued in the employ of Mr. Welsh, as long as he followed the sea. He then married, built a house on the site of the old log camp, and surrounded it with fruit and shade trees, for by travel and observation he had acquired ideas of taste, beauty and comfort quite in advance of the times or his neighbours. He then took his parents home to live with him, and made their last days happy. Although he was compelled by necessity thus early to go to sea, he had a strong attachment to the soil, and would have devoted himself to its cultivation in middle life, had he not met with losses, which so much embarrassed him that he was compelled to continue at sea to extricate himself. Captain Rhines's fine house, nice furniture and curiosities, which he brought home from time to time— "'excited no heart-burnings among his neighbours "'because they knew he had earned them by hard work "'and did not think himself better than others on account of that. "'Thus, when he became embarrassed, instead of saying, "'Good enough for him, "'he will have to leave off some of his quarter-deck heirs now, "'everybody felt sorry for him and told him so. "'Indeed, everything about the Rhines family was pleasant "'and excited cheerful emotions.' The old house itself had a most comfortable, cosy look, as it lay in the very eye of the sun, with an orchard before it, green fields stretching along the water, sheltered on the northwest by high land and forest. The shores were fringed with thickets of beech and birch, branches of which at high tide almost touched the surface of the water. Some houses are high and thin, resembling a sheet of gingerbread set on edge, "'They impress you with a painful feeling of insecurity, "'as though they might blow over. "'Such houses generally have all the windows abreast, "'so that when the curtains are up and the blinds open, "'you can look right through them. "'They seem cold, cheerless, repellent. "'You shrug your shoulders and shiver as you look at them. "'But this house was large on the ground "'and looked as if it grew there, "'with an L and long shed running to the barn. "'A sunny dooryard.' a spreading beech before the end door, and a great woodpile under it, suggestive of rousing fires. There was a row of Lombardy poplars in front of the house, and a large rock maple at the corner of the barnyard, which the children always tapped in the spring to get sap to drink and make sap coffee. There was a real hospitable look about the old homestead. It seemed to say there's pork in the cellar, there's corn in the crib, "'hay in the barn and a good fire on the hearth. "'Walk in, neighbour, and make yourself at home.' "'But the popularity of Captain Rhines among his neighbours "'had a deeper root than this. "'A great many of the young men in the neighbourhood "'had been their first voyage to sea with him. "'He had treated them in such a manner, "'had taken so much pains to advance them in their profession, "'that they respected and loved him ever after.' When it was known in the neighbourhood that Captain Rhines was going to sea, the question was not, how should he get men? But how should he get rid of them? There were so many eager for the berth. It would have done your heart good to have seen the happy faces of the men grouped together on that ship's foresail, waiting like hounds straining in the leash for the order to man the windlass. Not an old, broken-down shellback among them, but all the neighbours' boys, in their red shirts and duck trousers, white as the driven snow, which their mothers had washed. As each one of them had a character to sustain, was anxious to outdo his shipmate, and the greater portion of them were in love with some pretty neighbour's daughter, and expected to be married as soon as they were master of a ship, it is evident there was very little to do in the way of discipline. It was a jolly sight, when there came a gale of wind, to see them scamper up the rigging, racing with each other for the weather-earing. Captain Rhines, though a large and powerfully built man, was a pygmy to his son, Ben. Ben measured, crooks and all, six feet two inches in height, weighing two hundred and thirty pounds. He was possessed of strength in proportion to his size, and, what was more remarkable, was as spry as an eel and could jump out of a hog's head without touching his hands to it. His neighbours called him Lion Ben. He obtained the appellation from this circumstance. One day when the inhabitants of the district were at work on the roads, they dug out a large rock. Ben, then nineteen years of age, took it up, carried it out of the road, dropped it, and said it might stay there till they raised another man in town strong enough to take it back. He was now 26 years of age, of excellent capacity and good education for the times, his father having sent him to Massachusetts to school. It was very difficult to provoke him, but when, after long provocation, he became enraged, his temper broke out in an instant, and he knew no measure in his wrath. His townsmen loved him because he used his strength to protect the weak, and were, at the same time, excessively proud of him, as in all the neighbouring towns there was not a man that could throw him, or that even dared to take hold of him. He had a large chair made on purpose for him to sit in, and tools for him to work with, and if anybody lent a crowbar to Captain Rhines, they always said, "'Don't let Ben use it,' as in that case it was sure to come home bent double, and had to be sent to the blacksmiths to be straightened.' He was passionately fond of gunning, and would risk life and limb to shoot a goose or sea-duck. Though he had followed the sea since he was seventeen years of age, yet he was greatly attached to the soil, and when at home loved to work on it. It was a curious sight to see this great giant weeding the garden, or at work upon his sister's flower-bed. He was a generous-hearted creature. When anybody was sick or poor, he would get all the young folks together. "'make a bee, get in their corn, do their planting, "'or cut their winter's wood for them. "'He had often done this for the widow Hadlock, "'who was their nearest neighbour. "'The widow Hadlock's husband, a very enterprising sea-captain, "'had died at sea, in the prime of life, "'leaving his widow with a young family, a farm, "'a fine house well furnished, but nothing more. "'The broken-hearted woman had struggled very hard "'to keep the homestead for her children,' "'and the whole family together. "'Being a woman of great prudence, industry, and judgment, "'with the help of good neighbours, she had succeeded. "'Her oldest son was now able to manage the farm, "'and the bitterness of the struggle was past. "'The tax-gatherer came to the widow for the taxes. "'Why, Mr. Jones,' said the widow, "'you tax me altogether too much. "'I have not so much property.' "'Oh, Mrs. Hadlock,' said he, "'we tax you for your faculty.' notwithstanding all the sterling qualities we have enumerated the personal appearance of ben rhines was anything but an exponent of his character there was such an enormous enlargement of the muscles of the shoulders and his neck was so short that his head seemed to come out of the middle of his breast the great length of his arms was exaggerated by the stoop in his shoulders though his legs and hips were large yet the tremendous development of the upper part of the body gave him the appearance of being top-heavy. For such a square-jawed fellow, you would naturally expect to proceed a deep, bass voice, but from this monstrous bulk came a soft, childlike voice, such as we sometimes hear from very fat people, and unless he was greatly excited, the words were slowly drawled. The entire impression made by him upon a stranger was that of a great... Listless, inoffensive man, without penetration to perceive or courage to resist imposition. But never was the proverb, appearances are deceitful, more strikingly verified than in this instance. That listless exterior and almost infantile voice concealed a mind clear and well informed, and a temper that, when goaded beyond the limits of forbearance, broke out like the eruption of a volcano. In his position as mate of a vessel, it became his duty to control men of all nations. Being well aware that his appearance was calculated to invite aggression, he took singular methods to escape it. He knew that his temper, when it reached a certain point, was beyond his control. He also knew his strength, and as the good-natured giant didn't want to hurt anybody, when milder methods would answer the purpose, he would come along just as a ship was getting under way, the men at the topsail halyards, and reaching up above all the rest, bring them down in a heap on deck, causing those that were singing to bite their tongues. Sometimes when two or three sailors were heaving with the handspikes to roll up a spar to the ringbolts, singing out and making a great fuss, he would seize hold of the end of it and heave it into its bed, apparently without any effort, while the men would wink to each other and reflect upon the consequences of having a brush with such a mate as that. By proceeding in this way, though he had taken up one or two that had insulted him beyond endurance and smashed them down upon the ground, kicked a truckman into the dock who was beating his horse with a cordswood stick, he never struck but one man in his life, which happened in this wise. Ben was on board a ship in port, with only a cook and two boys, the captain having gone home, and the rest of the crew being discharged. He hired an English sailor to help the boys trim some ballast in the hold. They complained that he kicked and abused them. Ben told them to go to work again, and he would see about it. After dinner, he lay down in his berth for a nap. When he was disturbed by a terrible outcry in the hold, and going down, found the sailor beating the boys with a rope's end. He asked him what he was doing that for. The man said they wouldn't work, and was saucy to him ben replied that the boys were good boys that he had always known them and that he mustn't strike the boys the bully asked him if he meant to take it up ben replied that he didn't wish to take it up but he mustn't strike the boys the sailor then threatened to strike him upon which ben stood up before him and folding his arms on his breast in his drawling childish way told him to strike the man struck when Ben inflicted upon him such a terrible blow, that, falling upon the ballast, he lay and quivered like an ox when he is struck down by the butcher. "'Oh, Mr. Rhines! exclaimed the terrified boys. "'You've killed him! You've killed him!' "'Well,' he replied in his quiet way, "'if I've killed him, I've laid him out.'" End of Chapter 2